sort of talking about visionary filmmakers. And I think that's a, a big defining factor here is that everybody knew exactly what this movie is. Welcome to the Crooked Table podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. This episode, we're going to be talking about the 2008 Wachowski film Speed Racer, and I'm honored to be joined by Stephen Colbert. Welcome to the Crooked Table podcast. All right. Thanks for having me, Rob. So tell people a little bit about uh, who you are, what you do, and and specifically about your podcast, because it's also about a... Uh, I guess big, bold Warner Brothers release that really swung for the fences yeah. and has kind of become a cult classic, I guess. Yeah, I've got a soft spot for those, obviously. <laughs> um, so I I am a, a writer and editor over at uh, Screen Rant, and so um, you know I I do I do a lot with what they go, they do over there. I'm uh, I'm on the feature side specifically, so lots of uh, explainers, analysis, uh, that kind of stuff. I know you're you're familiar because you've done you've done stuff with us. Yeah, uh, quite a bit. Yep. Um, and uh, and then also in addition to that, I am uh, co-host on uh, BVS by the Minute with Andrew Dice, where uh, and people always laugh when I when I describe it because it, because of the nature of the movie, it's um, we uh, go through Batman v Superman, uh, Dawn of Justice Ultimate Edition, uh, one minute at a time, and it's like anywhere from ten minutes to even you know thirty minutes um, per episode or per minute of the of the movie. And so we either get like eye rolls and how can you how can you tolerate that? Or then obviously there's plenty of like, oh, that's the greatest idea ever from from some of the fans. But we felt like it's a it's something that um, Andrew and I both really enjoyed the movie a lot. And it's obviously a uh, has a very polarizing reception. But because of that, the sort of discussion afterwards has been tied up in. Um, how people feel about Zack Snyder or what he did to the characters or um, or what happened with Justice League and um, and then the Snyder cut and all mm-hmm. that stuff kind of just drowned out like very little discussion actually happened about the movie itself it seemed like um, and it's almost impossible now to even have that discussion online like I have this podcast and I, I tweet you know a fair amount about DC, DCEU, Zack Snyder stuff but really I find that I do it less and less just because you can't say anything about any of those movies or Snyder without just kind of having a mess in your mentions of (laughs) all sorts of, you know, whatever, Uh, which as a fan is like really frustrating because it's like you want to have this great discussion. And the second it comes up, it's like, oh, well, I'm I'm done on Twitter for the day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like bringing up The Last Uh, Jedi. It's a trigger word for. Oh, yeah, exactly. Movie fans, I guess. Um, Yeah. So Andrew and I are like, let's. You know, let's let's find a way that we can kind of appreciate and talk about this in a um, I don't know safe space is is maybe another um, difficult word, but in a in a place where we can actually like talk about it without a getting like overzealous and and saying there's some sort of parallel and magic magical connection between every single detail, but also without having to worry about like all the the kind of yuck yuck like you know they stop fighting because their moms have the same name kind of shorthand and, and look at some of the actual, you know, it's a, it's a, a big movie. It's a polarizing movie, but it has some, um, there's some beautiful visuals and a lot of thought and work went into it. And so we just enjoy talking about that. 
Yeah, I think sometimes, in a way, I feel like those are sometimes the the most interesting films to talk about because with something like BVS, you have the the hardcore DCEU people that are like, oh, Marvel's for kids, blah, blah, blah. DC is keeping it real. And then the other side, you have people that are like, oh, DC is just, there's a garbage movie, that kind of thing. Um, whereas I feel like I've always been kind of stuck in the middle ground where there are obviously elements of that film that I don't, that don't work for me, but there's so much... There's so much, so much in it that's still worth discussing and worth paying attention to. And, and uh, I mean, for example, I, I actually really, I, I'm curious to hear what you think about it. But I actually kind of like Jesse Eisenberg's take. I think that performance is oh, interesting. Yeah. Is it, is it, you know, is he weird and or, or borderline obnoxious? Well, yeah, but is he has an interesting take on it rather than you know a bald guy in a suit? It's, it's kind of a uh, well, fittingly enough, with Eisenberg, it's kind of a, a Mark Zuckerberg-y take on Lex Luthor right. for the modern age. So, well, and not only does it make sense um, for for it to be sort of an updated, like a modern Lex Luthor would be like a like a um, like a Mark Zuckerberg um, exactly. Mark Zuckerberg sort of character, um, but also it's it's really not all that out of line with um, with previous interpretations. I mean, he's a little bit weirder. But like you look at Lex in like you know the the gold standard for everyone is is in Superman the movie, um, the seventy eight I think, um, and he's not that far off from from the portrayal in that. I mean they both have hair too, which is the the funniest part. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, yeah, so it's it's weird. It's one of those things where it's like I understand maybe there's some some critique or some maybe some people will cringe at at different things he does or whatever. But there there was very little sort of actual discussion about why he was different or anything like that. And it was just dismissed outright as, Oh, that's not Lex Luthor just discussion done. It's like, well, there's, there's a lot of really fascinating aspects of that to talk about. Even if you don't like it, um, they were doing, there's lots of literary references within what Lex Luthor is doing. And, um, obviously social, uh, commentary, especially with the Mark Zuckerberg, um, you know, you fast forward a couple of years and you look at what has happened with Mark Zuckerberg, like since that movie came out, And it's like, well, maybe it wasn't <laughs> like that ridiculous to make that kind of character the, you know, such a, such a villain. So it's, um, um, so we're just really enjoying kind of breaking that apart outside of the kind of toxic combination of echo chamber and it sucks. I'm don't care to even talk about it um, right. environment where right. um, that happens on social media. And DC is with, you know, with all their movies, but specifically with something like, with like BVS, they're they're probably they're really ambitious like they try things they try something different and that's always been kind of my differentiator between dc and marvel like marvel movies are for the most part good but they they do have a very strict kind of formula that they follow that makes them kind of feel samey by the time you get to the 20 something century uh yeah and people get offended when you when you mention that but um and, and like there are differences and i enjoy kind of all of them for what they are but there's still like I don't know. I feel like audiences are kind of trained to know what to expect. It's almost like a Mad Libs of of movies, right? Where the the kind of the jokes are all the same, and the and the sort of the plot and the the hero characterizations are are pretty similar, and and there's some minor differentiation. But um, the what I always have said about Zack Snyder, and I guess that applies to DC movies also, is it's one thing for you to just like not like him, but if if you think that that he's a like a terrible filmmaker or or don't think he should be making movies or these specific movies great show me where my alternative 
is. Mm-hmm. Like if if you if you're gonna say, oh, if you like Zack Snyder, you really should like you know X Y Z directors instead. Um, and they really, it's a, I mean, there's there's some, but it's like a really short list of like where where's the alternative that you can kind of scratch that itch of that sort of hyper stylized um, sort of um, I don't know. I guess there's there's arguments as to whether or not he's he he strives for uh, deep content versus more. Uh, a lot of people say it's like something that like adolescents would write in their journal. Um, and so there's obviously an argument there. But you know who else is trying to make that that movie? Um, and uh, and even if you're going to say it's not that great, it's you know it's it's a a, a type of content you're not going to get anywhere else. Show me another BVS. Love it or hate it. There's not like it is a it is. We're, there's probably never going to be another superhero movie that's like that for right. better or for worse. Yeah, it's true. You look at DC, you look at DC's um, version of Lex Luthor. You look at their version of the Joker, and those are very different than what we expect the characters to be. But they're they're taking chances. They're doing something different. And I've I you know I have BVS the Ultimate Edition on Blu-ray. I've watched it a couple of times since I got it, and I I find that it 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 really is kind of almost most accessible in like hour long chunks. Like I kind of almost view it as, and this is kind of the, this is the case for me with the Watchmen. Uh, when I think that's also whatever that's called the ultimate cut of whatever that is of that. Yeah. And like they basically like three hour long segments, almost like a kind of a mini series type of deal that you can kind of, I think you can, can uh, appreciate what he's trying to go for and the, the scale of the story that he is trying to tell more than seeing it in, uh, you know, chopped up to, to fit, you know, a two hour and 20 minutes, uh, runtime during a theatrical run. So that's cool that you guys are going with that version too. And I, I think, there's a really, I, I think, really bad take that was going around film Twitter recently that about how Christopher Nolan is the only visionary filmmaker, like, convince me otherwise. Oh, yeah, I saw I'm that. Like, what? I mean, if you're going by visionary as in makes films unlike any other person, then you have to consider people like Zack Snyder, people like the Wachowskis, which I think is kind of the parallel between, you know, those two films that were the BVS and Speed Racer, is that they... There is nothing that looks like Speed Racer, as we'll get to in a second. There, this yeah. this is very it's a very unique well, vision. And, and go ahead. Um, well, no, I was just gonna just gonna sort of piggyback on what you were saying. It's fascinating, and I there seems to be an argument that pops up whenever you you talk about a visionary filmmaker or um, auteur theory is another area mm-hmm. where that debate kind of tends to pop up. And and I don't know if it's an issue with definite like people. People assume that when you say like someone is not sure that you're saying that they are like the best or they're really talented when really it just means that they've got they, they make films from like a really specific point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so when you're talking about uh, about that, you know, you don't have to, it doesn't mean that they're like the upper upper tier, but it just it does mean they're in a particular category. And so, yeah, Zack Snyder and Christopher Nolan um, and and all those guys do belong in that category. Now you can have debate as to whether or not you, you prefer one of those movies or not, but you can't say that it doesn't come from a very singular specific vision. Um, and you can tell that it's not a made by committee sort of product. Right. And I guess that's, you know, considering that we're both talking about two Warner brothers releases, I guess that's a testament that Warner brothers at times is, is really willing to, and also uh, Mad Max Fury Road, isn't that Warner brothers as well? Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're, you know, they're swinging for the fences with some of these movies and that, cause that's another film I would definitely put in that category as well. So very much so. Um, I think that's a kind of a good segue. So let's go listen to a little bit of the trailer for Speed Racer. Mm-hmm. 
Jean seems to be interested in only one thing. All he talks about, all he seems capable of thinking about, is automobile racing. Racing's everything. For my family, it isn't just a sport. It's way more important than that. It's like a religion. Are you ready to become a real race car driver? Then sign that contract. He's just trying to scare you, son. What you do behind the wheel of a race car has nothing to do with business. You walk away from me, you walk away from this deal, no matter how well you drive, you won't win, you won't place. I guarantee you right now, you won't even finish the race. You think you can drive a car and change the world? It doesn't work like that. Maybe not. But it's the only thing I know how to do when I gotta do something. That was a little bit of the trailer for Speed Racer from 2008, directed by the Wachowskis. So, Stephen, tell me a little bit about what's your experience with this film? Uh, Did you see it in theaters? And did you have any... Uh, what was your connection to the Speed Racer animated series and the mangas and all that? I I am very unfamiliar with the the manga and the animated series. Actually, I um I tried to watch a little bit of it when I was younger, and I don't have much of a memory of it except for the fact that I didn't like it much. Right. Um, I didn't really get into any sort of anime stuff until I was a little older. Um, and by a little older, I mean a little bit older of a child. Um. <laughs> Um, and that was more, I got into like the sort of the Dragon Ball Z and the Gundam, basically like whatever was on Toonami on, um, on uh, Cartoon Network at the time. Um, and, um, but Speed Racer, I remember watching the cartoon and it was just too, I didn't get that sort of anime vibe yet. It's got a very specific like attitude that, um, you kind of have to, to acquire taste. I feel like, mm-hmm. um, and it's something that I, I really enjoy now and I can sit down and watch it. But at the time it was too weird and too, um, I, I guess com- stemming out of our, um, the conversation that we started, it, it's very much like from a more of a point of view than, um, than, uh, like a lot of American animation is and just the, the humor, I don't know, didn't land. And so I didn't see the movie in the, um, in the theaters at all. And I remember, I think I watched it for the first time on my computer monitor in my dorm room. And, um, and it was one of those things where I don't, I, I, I got it because of the, I think the, the Wachowski name and it just kind of looked crazy and I wanted to watch something like dumb and simple or whatever. And it's one of those ones where you start thinking you're going to have it on like in the background or do homework while you watch it or something. Mm-hmm. And like the next thing I knew, I was just glued. <laughs> like everything else disappeared. It's like one of those tunnel vision movies where like you don't know if you're even blinking um, by the time it's done. And um, and ever since then, it's been a like it won't be like constantly on my mind as, a, as like a favorite movie. But every time I start to think, oh, maybe I'll watch Speed Racer, it just becomes this itch that uh, I kind of need to watch it and and uh, um, and I don't know it's, it's just fascinating and I'm, I always find myself like almost jumping out of my seat like cheering or even feeling emotional uh, by the end of the movie because of oh, the yeah. way that they we'll get, we'll get to that. they craft so much of it yeah <laughs> yeah um, no I, I actually did see this in theaters just based purely on the Wachowski name I had haven't really still seen any of Speed Racer very much I was familiar with you know, familiar with the show and all that, but it's from the 60s, so it's before my time, so I didn't really get into it. Um, I did show my wife the opening theme song from the animated show before we, I showed her the movie. She hadn't seen it before, 
And uh, just to, to, to demonstrate how this film looks like it is an extremely accurate adaptation of the cartoon, uh, stylistically and as far as tone and things like that. And we'll get into some of the, the humor and whether or not that translated. But I think, you know, I really want to go back and cover more of the Wachowski films for this podcast because their career is so interesting, just going from Bound to the Matrix trilogy to this, Cloud Atlas... Uh, Jupiter Ascending. I mean, whether or not those movies work for you, it's those are big swings. Those are visionary films from yeah. a very specific point of view, and yeah, and they keep not really landing at the box office. Like those last three, this well, starting with I guess starting with Matrix Revolutions, but even this one, this made forty four million domestically, ninety four million worldwide against a production budget of one hundred and twenty million. And yet they still get those same kinds of budgets. Like they, the Cloud Atlas and Jupiter Ascending are expend, expensive films. And, uh, you know, I think that's to Warner Brothers' credit that they keep giving them so many chances with it. Um, yeah, someone was just saying the other day, I think I saw, or maybe it was because I think just a couple of days ago, actually, it was ironically um, trending on Twitter, like right as we're getting ready to do the podcast. Yeah. And um, somebody, um, I can't remember who it was, said, it's kind of amazing how many times Warner Brothers has allowed the Wachowskis to just burn a pile of money. Um, like who, like how many other directors have? Like there's other directors that keep on getting chances like that, but none that are given so much money to like get nothing out of it. Uh, like financially, obviously they're you know they have their movies have defenders and and a lot of them are cult classics, but it's amazing that they that they keep on getting these huge huge chances when they really haven't had a, a payoff since the matrix. Yeah. There's, there's a podcast that I really love to listen to called uh, blank check where they talk about filmographies and like exactly what we're talking about. Wachowskis were one of the first ones they, they did. And, and, you know, especially considering not only the financial, but the fact that these movies are very much the kind starting with speed racer onward that either, they either work for you or you don't, or they don't, you know, you're either really passionate about it and talking on it, talking about it on a podcast, or you're like, I don't know if I understand exactly what they're going for. I don't know if this is for yeah. me. So I, I just imagine the Wachowskis going into meetings with Warner Brothers, being like, "Hey, The Matrix, though." <laughs> you know, yeah. that that helping that like push propelling them forward for I guess twenty years or so. Well, and there's a question too from Warner Brothers' perspective. I, I unfortunately kind of get the impression that that strategy is going to be changing or has started to change, mm-hmm. uh, which is a little bit disheartening. But, you know, maybe Nolan and Tenet and and uh, some of that stuff is, you know, kind of get, get them to turn around a little bit. But um, the like how many swings and misses are you willing to take to get another Matrix? Like if they said, look, one in seven of our movies are going to be the Matrix, but you've got to give us you know, five or six, um, chances at burning $200 million <laughs> in order to get another matrix. And like, cause look at how influential something like the matrix is like, even just the initial box office can't measure how important of a movie that was not just for Warner brothers, but for film period. Yeah. For culture. Um, yeah. and if, if you're going to have an opportunity to, um, to get another one of those, you know, how, how much money are you willing to gamble? Um, if, if they might give you another matrix, which is why I kind of feel like all this every once in a while you hear about, you know, talk of another matrix movie, like a fourth matrix potentially with the Wachowskis involved. So I have a feeling like that conversation is probably happening with them and Warner brothers right now being like, all yeah. right, well, 
<laughs> you know, three strikes, Jupiter, uh, Speed Racer, Cloud Atlas, Jupiter Ascending. Now, now we need that right. matrix. <laughs> so, if you well, what I would keep an eye on with that one is probably a um, an HBO Max series is what I think we're going to see. Really? Yeah. Yeah. How do you, how um, which, do you feel you know, about that? As a, as obviously, I'm assuming a fan of the Matrix. How do? What, what would you? You know, would you want to see them kind of take it that direction? Um, I don't know. I mean, the idea of an updated Matrix is really. I think that the the our relationship with technology and the internet is so much there's so much more you can do with the matrix concept now um although you know the aesthetic was very like dial up 90s like cyberpunk mm. sort of stuff yeah. but with social media and government um like uh, uh spying and wiretapping and um all in the dark web and like there's the the type of matrix movie you would see in 2019 or you know 2020 whenever or um um is so different. And then on top of that, the changes to TV that have happened since the matrix came out. And now you've got these huge budget shows with these sprawling universes developed. And, um, and I think that the, the, the prospect of like a, a, a several season, uh, like 13 episode matrix series, um, could be really, really super cool. There's some stuff you can dig into there. Um, you know, and the, so I guess the question is, can the Wachowskis do that? There's, they they've done Sense Eight, which had, um, you, you know, has its its following, but is it, but not a wide following, just a passionate following. Um, and so, you know, could they pull that rabbit out of a hat again on TV? I don't know, but on paper, a a um, a big budget Matrix TV show, I think, sounds like an amazing um, thing that I would love to see, and you know the um and you know 2020s yeah and and yeah i think i wouldn't be surprised if warner brothers or whoever's involved is kind of watching to see what happens with the watchman show to see if that yeah. can that can land and actually you know attract the kind of audience that they they're hoping for but on the from the wachowski's perspective i think that they you know they're obviously all about creating immersive experiences i mean this is a two hour and 14 minute long children's film first of yeah. all essentially um and you know, I think that they probably were working on Sense8. They did really fall in love with that kind of long form storytelling. So I, I think that would, yeah, if they have some great ideas for what they want to do with the Matrix franchise. I, you know, I would be, I would be down for for that, especially if they're involved. If they're not involved, I might be a little more skeptical, and it'll feel obviously a lot more like a like a cash in. But um, yeah. yeah, well, Lily indicated at um, what the television. Critics Association, I think, is going on now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, cause she's got her other show on Showtime. And I think she indicated that she, that, um, there is something in development and, um, and that she is aware of it, but not involved. Um, or at least not directing. Um, but you know, who knows that people say all sorts of stuff that might be just a con- uh, contract negotiation, um, trick on her part or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I'd like to see but them. At that least, was going around a couple of days ago. I'd like to see them at least producing or writing or some of it, like show running it, basically, even if they're yeah. not like solely the sole voice behind the project. But, um, but yeah, because they, they they have a really interesting perspective as far as the the their narrative structure as well, and kind of bringing it back to Speed Racer. The first twenty minutes of this film is is basically it, it's a lot of cross cutting 
between Speed, uh, I forget the name of the racetrack that he's on, but Speed basically is essentially um, racing. Something head, anchor head, not anchor head is Star Wars, mo- Motorhead or something like that. <laughs> something like that. Uh, yeah. But he's basically racing the ghost of, of his brother. And then we get that intercut with his, you know, we get like a, a brief uh, flashbacks to his childhood when he met Trixie and his relationship with his brother and all that stuff. So it's like an info dump in the first 20 minutes of this movie. It's, it's, really kind of threaded together by Michael Giacchino's score, which I was listening to the other day and which I, you know, I bought on CD after the, uh, this movie came out. And, um, I, I think the music is so important here in really driving pun intended, <laughs> driving the yeah. story. And especially since large segments of this are not particularly dialogue heavy. It's a lot of, obviously a lot of race sequences. So, you know, how do you, how do you feel about the, the opening 20 minutes, the, that the fact that it's basically it's kind of its own mini movie in a way it's really a kind of a short yeah. film of here is who speed racer is for those of like you, I almost wouldn't be surprised if that was like a proof of concept right. that they gave to Warner Brothers and was like do you want us to turn this into 2 hours <laughs> um it's um i i think this most recent rewatch um sort of preparing for the podcast is i noticed some things that i had never really totally paid attention to and i love um recently i've really gotten fascinated in sort of picking apart cinematography and how vfx shots are um kind of put together and i've um been talking to some uh vfx artists for different movies and stuff and and sort of learning about a lot of that and and now it kind of changes the way i watch a lot of movies and now it's like a puzzle or a magic trick that i'm trying to figure out and this movie is absolutely fascinating in that sense because of like I want to see a making of documentary because I feel like every single um, or almost every single bit of dialogue is just a character captured in front of a blue screen just mm-hmm. like on their own. And then and then the that allows them to almost like George Lucas did with the prequels. Um, where there's all sorts of scenes that he kind of assembled out of nothing that the actors don't even remember doing because he there was so much on blue screen and he was able to clip here and clip there and morph stuff. Um, except the difference here is that there's this pacing with, uh, like you said, with Giacchino's score that keeps it going. And then they embrace the blue screen in this way that allows them to, like you said, cross-cutting, but it's even more than that where they will, they'll have a floating head come across the screen mm-hmm. to like deliver a line of exposition as to the right of them, they wipe something off the screen and to the left of them, something else is being revealed. And then, um, or someone will be talking and because it's blue screen behind them, all of a sudden it plays with focus and like the background will blur and then it will stretch into lines like vertical lines. And then it will twist, twist horizontally and the camera will pan around their face. And then all of a sudden they'll be in a helmet racing like through in a car. And the way that they assemble those transitions it allows them to do things narratively that I don't know I've seen done anywhere else um, before or after. Um, and it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, I, And it's also kind of uh, ins- clearly inspired by the animated series where there is that kind of uh, the head, the, the speeds, right. Speeds had like zooming past the camera with the lines like kind of blurred in the background. 
But I, I think, you know, you, you touched on something really pertinent here to why I think this movie works so well, is that we've, we've gotten a lot of, obviously, a lot of green screen heavy movies. I mean, we're living in the age of Marvel where it's basically all green screen all the time. Um, but the thing with this film is that it's not trying to replicate real life at all. And they established yeah. that right from the very beginning where he's, you know, little speed is at his desk and fantasizing about racing. And you get like hand drawn animation kind of happening around him and on all that. Um, that this is, it's based on a cartoon, so they basically create a living cartoon around these actors. So rather than something like all you know, all these all these movies like The Smurfs or whatever, where you take animated care or Sonic the Hedgehog, which is coming out, uh, you take an animated character and put them in a real life setting. It's the complete opposite. You're taking real life characters and putting them in a completely fantastic, putting them in a cartoon setting, essentially. So even when even at parts where the the CG obviously doesn't look real it's intent it, it works anyway because it's not supposed to it's not replicating anything that we're familiar with it's its own world in the way that something yeah, it like, like avoids the uncanny valley exactly, by like leaning exactly. into it right um and so yeah so, it, so it's intentional like if it, it's, it's awkward because that's that's the style not because they failed to like properly blend the CGI and, and live action. Exactly. Exactly. I think of something like sky captain in the world of tomorrow, another movie that nobody talks about, uh, that, that tried to do that kind of with more of a noir influence. And I feel like it kind of works in sequences in that movie, but because it is still ultimately tethered to our world, it still has a little bit of that same kind of problem at times. Yeah. Or, I mean, speaking of of other visionary directors, um, it's like or in Zack Snyder specifically, it reminds me a lot of what he did with 300. Yeah. Um, it's like stylistic, like the editing style is like very different. But in the same way that they instead of like that movie was able to be done on such a low budget because instead of trying to create like realistic sets or filming on location, um, it was all like impressionist, like matte paintings that they that they put in the background, and they just embraced that kind of stark comic book look um, and leaned into that instead of trying to create some sort of a hyper realistic look. And again, that created that resulted in a movie that um, I don't think there's really been much a lot of um, copycats for that one, but nothing that's quite the same. Oh man, you remember the spirit? That Frank Miller tried <laughs> I know, to do. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. I did. I never watched that whole thing, but I. I uh, for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, but I know what you're talking about. Um, but but in that in the first twenty minutes, not only do they establish the the visual language that you need to to <laughs> to understand the world that the that Speed Racer is set in, but you you either buy it, like I said, you either buy into it or you don't. But at the same time, they establish the emotional basis for the for the whole story being the bond that this family has over racing, that it, it's mm-hmm. really, you know, like Speed says later on, it's kind of like a religion to them. Uh, the, the loss of Rex early on. So it really lays the, the emotional groundwork beautifully uh, amidst the effects and all that other stuff. Yeah. And that's something that I, th- I think is fascinating. I, I was reading the Wikipedia page and it's kind of crazy. The, the, course that this took into like winding up on the big screen and it was actually um a bunch of different people were um involved in it like from like at one point in the 90s johnny depp was attached to play speed racer um and then um and after that it it went to um here um um van sant had a shot alfonso curran was um involved at one point 
um, J.J. Abrams try to take a crack at the script. Um, and but this iteration of it actually was uh, spearheaded by Vince Vaughn originally. Um, and then he uh, kind of got um, faded away from the project. And that's when the, the Wachowskis came in. And um, and what they decided to do with the sort of the script, I guess I don't know exactly how much involvement they had in the writing, but I feel like this is the type of movie where the a writer's room or whoever is kind of putting it together would normally try to say, okay, this is a silly concept. Let's find a nugget in here and find something people really care about. And they would try to attach it to something a little bit more grounded or, or they'd say oh, like the real thing behind this is the, the corporate malfeasance or, or whatever, or try to say something more. And they said, no, this is a movie about racing. So we're going to just embrace this world in which racing is literally everything. Um, and then, and then we're going to insert this family into it where all they care about is their family and racing. And so, um, and so you get all that kind of absurd dialogue where, um, uh, what Royalton says stuff to him, like, if you want to be a real race car driver or, um, it's not about uh, what cars or drivers. Um, and it's all this kind of in universe talk, um, that like a normal person would be like, I don't really, why does that, that's, why is that like some sort of profound statement on like life? You're talking about driving race cars, but they created the universe in which like that holds this like thematic weight and then just ran with it instead of trying to find like some, um, something that audiences would connect with and, and it works. Um, I think audiences connect with the family aspect and the racing is like, Oh yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's fiction. And so just like, you know, in star Wars, we don't believe in the forest, but we feel a connection to it. And so they sort of do that, but with racing, they make racing into this thing that people care about. Yeah. It's, it reminds me of something like Zoolander where they're in that movie, like male models are a huge thing. And they're like, what world is this where male models are like the central, yeah. <laughs> the central concept that runs the world basically. But, but I mean, because it dials in so much on the racer family and uh, you know, they essentially lost Rex to this world. And I mean, we'll get into Rex a little bit later. Uh, yeah. You know, when that, when this, that opening sequence comes to a climax, when speed purposefully lets Rex keep the record, it, it brings together the visuals and the and the uh, the emotional storytelling in a in a really satisfying way. And then then the story really the movie really starts in a way. Yeah. Um, and then of course we're introduced to might as well get this out of the way. My my biggest issue with this film, which is probably Spritel and Chim Chim, and they're a little. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They're little uh, goofy interludes with the candy and all that other stuff. Uh, how, how do you feel about Spritel and Chim Chim and uh, and what they, I guess, bring to this to this film? I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things where I guess it depends on what you're going to sort of want from the movie. Like it's ultimately right. it's a PG movie. Um, it's a kids movie. And and the Spritel and Chim Chim stuff on, on on some levels, I can see how it's like a little bit cringe or maybe eye rolling. Right. But. I also am kind of all about it. Like that opening, I think is the scene that they're introduced in the scene where they're doing like the Kung Fu. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great race in the beginning. And then, yeah, that's like their big, their first. Yeah. And that's always been so, um, I think that's one of the scenes where they really kind of first demonstrate like what they're going to do visually. And they bring that back later on when they fight the the ninjas also. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know, their, their gags are, are dumb and childish, but there's so many moments Mm -hmm. that I feel like they, like I was saying about how they kind of embrace this like world where racing matters and they're spritel and chim chim are like almost like the straight men in a way. Um, 
where like um like when speed and um and trixie are are in the car and they're talking about he's like oh do you need a new igniter for your helicopter um and uh, and he's like oh how about when we're at the race and i have like a a nice um bottle of cold milk and then i'll swoop (laughs) you up and, and kiss you and it's like really sort of sappy romantic like okay like is this really gonna whatever and then like and then they have Spritel in the car who just like starts groaning. And it's like, that's so, it's so absurd. But also the fact that like the way they embrace that character to the point where like, Oh yeah, no, he snuck away and he's in the car and he's perfectly quiet yet. They get to that. And he's so disgusted. Like he needs to, he, he embraces the sort of cootie phobia to such a, I don't know, to such a, a perfect degree. Well, to the point um, that right. he interrupts later when they finally do get to kiss to like warn yeah, viewers, yeah. <laughs> the cootie sensitive audiences. Yeah, exactly. So there's almost like a, and I guess obviously that is a fourth wall breaking moment there. But I think my all time favorite moment with him is in um, right after he gets caught with the um, with the candy, and um, and that, actually the whole sequence is amazing because Royalton is like chewing out speed, and um, and that's one of those moments where that camera the background starts spinning um, as um, as Royalton is talking and it, as the camera slowly pans around, but the the blue screen background is spinning also. And, um, and, but then, um, when the elevator dings and, and Spritle shows up, well, first of all, Royalton like blinks right when the, the elevator dings, which I think is just a really funny sound timing. Um, but then they get in the elevator to leave and Spritle flips the bird, like right <laughs> as the doors yeah. are closing. And I don't know, it's just little stuff like that, that I think, um, I think that almost makes the movie work in a way, um, where I, a movie like this without Spritle would be almost too, um, um, like un, almost untethered from like yeah. the the sort of childish concept that it's embracing. Well, and I, I'm, I'm being unfamiliar with the animated series. I, I'm I'm assuming a lot of the Spritle and Chim Chim antics were uh, on the show as well. But you make I mean you make a compelling case for Spritle and Chim Chim's role in in the overall story because everything else is so earnest and so sentimental that that it would could feel kind of dry and lifeless without having that little bit of contrast sprinkled throughout the, you know, throughout the narrative. Yeah. And, and I don't know, it's weird because I don't think I've ever thought of it quite to this extent. Cause like I said, I think there is a lot of like, it's hard for me to say he's like my favorite part of the movie, but there's a flavor that he brings that I think, um, like what, what's the part after they read the, the hit piece, the, um, and the, in the newspaper after, um, after um, Cortega or wherever they race, when he, the first race that he loses, and the the newspaper is like, it's not clear yet whether or not Speed Racer used a spear hook, um, and uh, and Spritel is like, we're gonna send him some chim chim cookies, mm-hmm. and it's, it's just I don't know, he's always and the I guess the performance, who's the the kid that does that is so is so great, and of course they have it's like a a relic from the '90s. They have like the real monkey in the movie, yeah, um, it's. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it all that all works very well for me. The kid's name is Pauly Lit, and I don't. Uh, I guess he was in Eternal Sunshine. He played a bully in Eternal Sunshine, and he has a couple other things. But, but yeah, so he was uh-huh. on Hope and Faith back in the early two thousands. That sitcom. Okay. But yeah, so um, yeah, no, I think there's a very it's a very specific type of performance that all the other actors are giving, and uh, you know, we go straight from the opening twenty minutes into 
the Royalton, the basically what I kind of dubbed this the seduction period of the film, where that thirty mm-hmm. minutes were from pancakes are love when he shows up at their house. <laughs> yeah, and Roger Allen, who's also in V for Vendetta, who's really great in this character and really as this character and yeah. really knows how to uh, ham it up in well, just the right speaking way. Speaking about like contract or contrasting between like Spritel. Uh, versus like the counterbalance of he's so over dramatic about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's the one he's like, if you want to be a real race car driver, you sign that contract. Um, you know, and you've got that right alongside like Chim Chim cookies. It's just <laughs> uh, um, like it's a it's a it's amazing that they're able to kind of juggle that. Yeah, that's, there's a crazy there's a crazy amounts of tonal shifts between, uh, you know, the 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 larger than life villain and the little kid and his monkey running around getting into stuff, the racing scenes. And then there's like those, the, there's a, a couple like fist fights kind of thing later that happened where mm-hmm. John Goodman is, uh, you know, spinning someone over his head and all that kind of thing where it gets yeah. really, well, and then he delivers like one of my favorite lines of the whole movie where he's like a ninja, more like a ninja. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I think are really other than Spritel and Chim Chim introduction with the, as you mentioned with the, uh, the ninjas and stuff. Uh, it's really the tour of uh, Royalton Industries where we get kind of a uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory type of vibe, uh, just kind yeah. of going uh, through that and then like creating like if this film has a larger thematic point to make, other than racing is cool and stick with your family and like you know creating uh, the power of art and all that uh, and creativity and freedom and all expression and all that stuff. It is the corporate world versus the little guy. It's passion versus, you know, versus profit and things like that. And how do you, what do you think that that, that's, I guess that commentary brings to, to the film? I think for me, I think it it does elevate it from just, it gives it a little more substance to, but not so much that it's, I don't know. (laughs) I'm I'm definitely articulating why it works so well for me. Well, it reminds me almost of like a Captain Planet villain. Yeah. Where they take something like a very pure concept about like corporate, um, uh, like uh, the corporations like destroying art for the sake of profit or, um, or like taking the life out of whatever for the sake of profit. Um, but instead of sort of getting lost in the, in the weeds of that and focusing too much on like the stock market or like a, any boardroom politics or anything. They kind of they make Royalton like a like a Captain Planet villain where it's just it's just like, you know, he just says um, like truisms about money and all that matters is money. And then and don't really go into that in a way that I think, like you said, it, it, it gives the movie something a little bit more like a little bit more substance to it. But it also prevents it from being um, I, I keep on going to the Star Wars prequels, which is weird because I'm a big prequel defender. But the way that people complained about like the politics in the Star Wars prequels, like the the sort of corporate side of this, could very easily become what like a, a drain on the plot. But mm-hmm. they just make it this very simplistic, like only money matters, and and I do whatever I want because I'm the boss, and um, and uh, and and racing is fixed, and. And then you kind of counterbalance that with like it exists in this world where racing just for whatever reason is the be all end all of of everything. And like there's some inherent value to being a driver. And um, and it it I think it works to elevate everything without, like I said, kind of getting lost in in sort of corporate business babble. Yeah, it creates a backdrop and kind of a, uh, you know, 
uh, gives it the, the film an easy entry point to world building and building a mythos and all of that without getting too deep into uh, you know the, the machinations happening behind the scenes because I mean it, if you're a kid watching this or an adult watching this it's kind of all of that is just kind of there it doesn't really matter that you know that this businessman is doing this so they could drive the stock up and all that it's just, you yeah. know because just when, right when you get in the middle of with Taijo uh, being held captive by what is it Crusher Block or something uh, yeah it's like oh, and there's <laughs> or Racer Black, X Black to Crusher save. it might be yeah something like that uh, yeah. and then Racer X swoops in and you get a, a cool looking action sequence and uh, the comedy of the you know and the henchman having to poke his finger into the piranha tank um, yeah. uh, things like that so I, I yeah i really like this as an introduction also to racer x who is a basically i guess a kind of high speed vigilante racer slash uh government agent sort of a I, 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 did you know anything about racer x really going into this i mean I, you have not familiar with the the show so yeah yeah without familiarity with the show i i had no idea um and I still don't. I mean, having you know seen the movie a number of times, I'm still not sure if that's a, something that's present in the show or if that's a or if that's a change. That feels like the type of thing that this movie would would usually um, sort of twist to try to elevate the source material or something. But mm-hmm. um, like I said, I have no idea. I, I can see that also being present there too. Yeah, I think in the uh, f- because I remember I did research on this like a million years ago when I was first falling falling in love with this movie uh, that. I think Racer X was on the show. I think they alluded to a connection with the Racer family, but I don't think they ever really delved into it. And he never took the mask off. And this movie takes that obviously a, a step or two further. Um, yeah. But I, I think it, it adds, you know, it, it builds off the fact that the first 20 minutes establishes that Rex is kind of the heart of this film, the storyline with, with uh, you know, what happened to him, that he was trying to fight against the system, you know, paralleling Speed's journey as well. And I think that in the, in this film, Emil Hirsch, it's it's early on. You know, my wife watching it for the first time was like, he hasn't really said anything. Like he's just kind of a, a little bit of a blank canvas. And I, and I think that's clearly intentional because it, it you know established right out the gate that his entire personality is centered on racing, and that comes from obviously his family, his relationship with his brother. But other than that, he doesn't really have a lot more, a lot of depth. And in a lot of ways, this is almost kind of a coming of age story for Speed, where he starts to, I guess, realize what what matters to him and, and kind of stand up and have a little bit of agency in, in the direction of his life. Yeah, so I, I really, I like that part of it as well. And I I, um, I think Emil Hirsch does a, a decent job at getting that across and, uh, and, and such. So... Yeah, I think um, it's interesting because I well, I don't dislike it. I feel like Racer X is also kind of one of the most um, I don't know if I want to say shallow or like underdeveloped parts, um, but I feel like a lot of his plot is is kind of assumed or just kind of in the background or implied. And maybe that's because they don't make the reveal until like the end of the movie. And then also when they do make the reveal, don't really do a whole lot with it other than just to kind of add depth to his character. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as a result, he's just kind of a force of nature almost throughout, throughout a lot of the rest of it. Um, but, um, but I do find it really sort of interesting what they do with him, especially like the, there's a lot of really funny parts about that where, um, so his, his it's Rex racer. Um, but then, um, he changes his name to, racer x <laughs> where if you say it if you say it fast enough it just it's it sounds like racer rex um and then he changes his face 
but then also wears a mask. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and so like if someone were to like leaving the possibility for his enemies to suspect that he's Rex racer without giving them the chance to, uh, confirm that it's not actually him. I don't know. There's a lot of really funny, funny parts about it, but like, it like works though in the sense that like it's, it's a cartoon and it's like perfectly cartoony, like a, or like a very much like an anime kind of thing that they, that they do with that. That's really funny. Yeah. And the movie kind of has a, a little kind of has its cake and eats it too type of deal where, where, as you said, early on in the movie, it's not super hard. Even my wife was like, I think Racer X is Rex. I'm like, well, we'll have to watch it yeah. find out. <laughs> let's, let's see what happens. Um, and then, you know, early on, Speed kind of suspects that as well. Uh, but then it's revealed that he's not, but then that he is. It's kind of a similar trick that, that the Wachowskis pulled on the Matrix, actually. Like, oh, you're not the one. Just kidding. Yes, you are. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit of that. So it's, um, yeah, it's like. A, a, a little side mission of the movie to just help you try and to keep you you hooked into it. It's like, well, Racer X is he or isn't he? We'll we'll have we'll find out. Right. Well, and then it and then the fact that he is only really matters to the audience a little bit. Like it right. doesn't actually impact, and maybe Speed suspects it but understands. Um, I I was wondering about that, but um, but yeah, because at the end of the movie, he's like, "Are you ever going to tell him?" And he's like, mm, "I don't." I don't, you know, that, that's, that's a, what, if it's a mistake, it's one I'll have to live with, I think yeah. is what he says. Yeah. And, um, which really doesn't have much of an impact on, on the plot or, or anything. It's just kind of like, oh yeah, in case the audience was wondering, it's totally Rex. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, and I like that, you know, I think that the, pretty much the casting across the board is really solid. I, you get people like John Goodman and Susan Sarandon who each have probably the most emotional moments in the movie, which we'll, we'll get to in shortly. Um, but just casting Christina Ricci as basically a live action anime character with those huge eyes that she has, I thought yeah. was a genius bit of casting. And as I mentioned earlier, everybody knows exactly what kind of movie they're in and, and everybody knows exact how to, how to play it. Cause the humor from something like this doesn't comes from playing it completely serious. Like, no, this is racing is, is our yeah. life depends on this race. And, and the heightened element of it that that comes off of that, I think, is is what makes it what makes it work for for the people. Like I said, for the people that it works for, um, you know, the fact that we have this world where there's like the secret origin of racing. There's like a, a racing Illuminati, basically. Yeah. With these five men of the WRL and all of that. Um, where a world where at, in victory lane, you're not getting, you know, drinking beer or anything. It's all about that cold, fresh milk. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is like my favorite touch to the whole thing is just like, I, I meant to Google that and be like, is that, is there a thing <laughs> like, is that, is, or is that just like a quirk that they, that they put in? But I absolutely love that detail. Yeah. Yeah. I, and it's, it feels like something and, and, you know, I guess we'll get it to, to this more when we get to the end, but um, it feels it, it kind of toes that line between the the film is ultimately about the corporate interests, like you know, grown up adult making money and that kind of thing, and just the purity of of the race. So it makes sense that it would have that kind of childlike wonder to it. And if you're appealing to young audience members, of course you're going to drink milk because <laughs> that's something yeah. they can relate to, I guess. Um, but I, I really like the turn that the movie takes when Royalton does show his true colors and that whole speech that you mentioned. And I feel like that's when speed really comes alive. Yeah. It, well, and the way that they blend that, they sort of do the same thing they do in the intro where they, they have like him delivering exposition 
over and maybe that's part of what makes the movie work is that none of the exposition is just flat people standing in a room explaining what's happening. Mm-hmm. Anytime any sort of exposition starts, like I think that's the scene I was talking about where the background begins to spin faster and faster until it's in like lines and then the camera's panning around his face and then he starts to shift off and then Speed's head comes onto screen wearing the helmet and the cockpit appears around him and it's just and then he's in the race while you're still getting Royalton's narration over it. And then after he like loses the race, then it cuts back to the end of that conversation. And then when the conversation is over, it then skips like to the locker room after the race. And it's just a brilliant way to you get the action in there and you get the exposition. But none of it is like just like the I was going to say it's not just talking heads, but it is literally <laughs> talking heads because they they take them out of the um, the most boring. You know, nobody wants to watch people standing in an office talking in a movie. And instead they turn it into an exciting race scene um, interspersed with with Royalton making these grand you know, evil businessman threats. But it's still clear because he's saying, oh, this is what's going to happen. You're going to go to this yeah, exactly. race and you're going to lose. And this, you're going to have litigation coming on down on you and all that stuff. And that's exactly what happens. So it, it just, it's, it's easy for the audience to track, but it also, as you said, keeps that exposi- exposition scene from feeling tedious because we, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, a, it, yeah, it's, it's a, it's geniusly streamlined uh, narrative right. structure that they do here. And they, well, and it- and it allows them to do that like really operatic, like over the top serious um, sort of um, sort of delivery without um, without losing their balance on the fact that this is kind of a, you know, a crazy fun kids movie where like racing is the most important thing to anybody. And I think that like you said, with the way that everyone is perfectly cast and I feel like a lot of movies that want to be something like this um, – this particular movie, I guess not a movie. A lot of movies have tried to be this, but like a lot of movies that try to be something specific oftentimes for me fall apart because there's some sort of disconnect where like one of the actors is off doing a different movie. Mm-hmm. Um, like if, um, if anyone in this movie had, had read the script and been like, Oh, so this is just dumb, some dumb ch- kids movie. So I'll just play like the, I'll, I'll play it up for the kids instead of like that super earnest take. It would have like thrown the whole thing out of balance. Right. Um, Whereas, whereas, um, and I think that's, that's probably on the, the Wachowskis, I'm going to assume that they, when they did the casting or table reads or whatever, they sat everybody down and everybody was on the exact same page and not just from the casting and the, um, and the, like the, the actors and the, and the directors, but, um, you know, Giacchino is a part of that. And in the VFX team is part of that also like every, I feel like there's not a single person in this movie that didn't know exactly what it was supposed to be and delivered on, on that. And, um, and I think that's surprisingly rare. And that's the, I think the difference between that sort of visionary filmmaker versus, um, versus not is that a lot of, a lot of times there's, um, either some people aren't on the same page or, um, they just kind of homogenize it in order to avoid, the um the danger of not having all of those pieces clicking together yeah imagine a version of this film where everybody is playing playing it at at uh spritel's level yeah <laughs> that would that because that i mean that's that would be the alternative result is that everybody would be like well gosh speed blah, 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 like playing yeah. it too hyper too heightened too broad and instead of being like, no, no, let the world do its thing. You just play it like this is very serious. You're very upset because you lost this race in Fuji and, yeah. uh, and your mom is trying to talk to you about it. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's exactly it, it. emotionally grounds it so that we're keyed into these things. And when 
when Speed and Trixie take off to uh, what is it, the Casa Cristo uh, rally race, that we are we we are in, invested in what happens if they're going to get caught by by pops and how that's going to work out. Are they going to you know? Obviously, it's a kids movie, so <laughs> most likely it's going to work out. Uh, work out well for everyone but you know we get we get the that emotional drama that really brings everything uh, brings everything together in addition to the fact I wanted to point out specifically that in the Fuji race is when things really get like I feel like this this raceway is even more ridiculously uh, designed than than some of the other than some of the ones we saw previously because this is like some Mario Kart shit happening in this movie. Like a couple of times yeah. watching this, I was, tell- I was I was telling my wife, I'm like, this is basically what a Mario Kart movie would have to be like to be at all accurate. Well, and you know what's what's fascinating about this, and I'm going to bring up that visionary word again, um, is how despite all the insanity of the not only the design of the racetrack, but the all the insane. I think I guess maybe we'll. I'm assuming we're going to get into some of the colorful characters here in a second um, from uh, from the, this race. But the the um, the the sort of insane stuff that's going on with the the world and all the the crazy traps and weapons and um, and then the camera motions that are going on um, and like the zips back and forth between cars for for dialogue. Yet logistically, like in my head. I can see like that Mario Kart map up in the corner of like where they are yeah. on the track. Like there's never a point in this where like it would be so easy to just this for it to become a CGI blur of like, I don't know what's going on um, yet. Um, I always feel like I know sort of maybe not where exactly they are in the race, but I don't get disoriented with the uh, like the whipping around of the camera and all the sort of insane cars and everything. It's, it's the issue I have with the Transformers movies on a, like a spectacle level is that I don't know what the hell's going on, who is who. They all look kind of the same to me. But in this film, it, it, yeah, it's easy to tell where speed is in relation to the other cars, and and you know when they're spinning and flipping, and and the cameras is you know turning accordingly. Uh, yeah, it, it is. The action is all very clear. Um, to get into some of that, I mean, after Racer X and they, they form this sort of rebel alliance against uh, the big business yeah. of racing, essentially, that's when, as you kind of alluded to, the whole it becomes a racing James Bond all of a sudden where the Mach 5 is getting tricked out and it's got like these little these little um, these little shields on the tires where they're like battling yeah. at one well, point. He's got the, little, me- he's got the, 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 the joystick on his um, on his steering wheel. And he's, yeah. yeah, that's. It made me um, think of something like uh, Revenge of the Sith, where at the be- at, like there's that scene in the beginning where like uh, get him R two and R 2s fighting off like the little buzz droid. Oh or yeah, something yeah. Like that. Um, it's it's just it, it, yeah, it gets completely the racing. Well, it, thus far, has and been the and the rules but. of this world are hilarious, also because I know a lot of this is kind of underhanded, like it gets lost in the smoke. They don't do it in front of cameras, but there's a lot of like tricks that these cars are tricked out with that seems to be sort of totally above board yet that spear hook is, is so illegal, but like the buzz saws are not <laughs> <laughs> like, I, um, and I just think that's hilarious how, and you just buy it. Cause that's kind of like the rules of the universe. Like there's right. something inherent about the spear hook. That's like absolutely no off limits, but yeah, let's give them buzz. Um, <laughs> every single car can do flips and crash and knock people off course. And like nobody bats an eye. Um, but that spear hook, don't you dare? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, at, at least I think, most of speeds 
gadgets are most of them are are defensive in nature. So that's that, I guess. Right. It's like, and that's that's the other. But thing. those buzzsaws could so. easily be used to like <laughs> just true. cut off someone's wheels or something. <laughs> but instead, like, you know, how is how is like a how do you regulate that? Like as a, um, I guess that's another funny thing is the um, oh, what's it called the the agency that that Rex Racer or uh, Racer X works for CIB. I think. Um, yeah, the CIB. It's hilarious how the CIB also is like this, like they're the underdog, like <laughs> like they like they should they're they're like a government organization, right? Like they should be like regulating the races. Like how is it that like the corporations run it and the government is like a secret group? I don't know. It's it's a it's a funny. It works, but it's like a really funny twist about like why are you guys like. Like, why do you have to operate in the shadows? Like, it's your job to make sure, make sure that these guys aren't doing things illegally. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a really funny twist on that. Well, and, you know, to get to the, the wacky logic of this movie and to tie into your comments earlier about Racer X, you have that part where the ninjas sneak in and Racer X is like, oh, I got to rip this sheet and cover my face, <laughs> even though yeah. it's been changed and this person wouldn't know who I am either way, really. It's like, yeah, exactly. Oh God, it's so funny. Well, like I said, and, the, and I said it before, like the irony of that is that like race, um, Rex Racer before he, he died or like disappeared was, uh, was like clearly out there like to get these, um, these, uh, like shady operators. And so the fact that he disappears and then Racer X shows up, um, you'd think would be like a like he'd want people to know that Racer X has a different face than Rex Racer, right? Because it would it would get people off the like. Otherwise, I don't know if I was uh, one of those one of the the opponents, I would I would look into the Racer family and like be really suspicious about them. So you'd think he'd want to like throw them off that trail, but no, he covers his new face <laughs> with a mask, like leaving, like letting them be suspicious. But of course, that's not even a point in the plot, which I guess is probably fine that they don't make that more messy. But um, I always thought that was a funny detail. Yeah. And and then so the middle section, I feel like you get really lost into the whole, as I said, the sort of rebel alliance thing happening with uh, with Racer X and Speed and Taijo. There's some some ridiculous fight scenes, as I mentioned. Uh, yeah. John Goodman kind of taps into his Fred Flintstone experience a little bit there. With yeah. Some of his fight scenes. And uh, we get that. Well, in the. Yeah, go ahead. They get the backstory in there where he like, he he gets like the ninja in the in the headlock <laughs> and he zoom zooms in, in on his I, ring. I, I, yeah, it so it's like like they don't have to say anything about it. It's just like, oh yeah, no, he's he's our world wrestling champion. And then I think the ninja even looks over and is like, uh oh. <laughs> and then, and then like I said before, then he's like a ninja, more like a ninja. John um, Goodman is yeah. is probably my VIP of this movie. I mean, I I really like the the mo- the scene earlier with. Uh, Susan Sarandon, where she says, you know, you take my breath away and all that, which is really which is really poignant and plays in later on. But John Goodman n- nails all the emotional beats and, and like things like that, where he has to just straight up embrace just the inherent ridiculousness of uh, of the this film. Uh, and and yeah. he's just he's such an underrated actor. And it it kind of, you know, I'm still kind of pissed that he didn't get really much more recognition for 10 Cloverfield Lane when that came out a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Because he's so that's one good of my favorites, too. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Well, and he, I think, probably more than anyone in this uh, straddles that line between a kind of humorous over the top character and then delivers some of the most earnest, um, heartfelt, like emotional moments of the movie at the same time. Um like when he, um, that's at, uh, Conte Cristo when he has the, the conversation with, um, with speed after they show up and speed's like, I'm not leaving. And then he has that flip into, um, and, um, um, 
I don't remember what the line is that causes that causes the flip, but he's like, we're leaving, and 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 um and Speed says they're not, and then he's like, okay, fine. Uh, let me see the car. He's like, it's it's um it's operating funny, isn't it? He's like, yeah, it's pulling to the left and it's a little stiff. He's like, oh, they they messed with it, and then so he's like, got to go to the, and he's all into the, um he's all into the car, and I and I just think that that shift is really kind of in the way that it embraces the family aspect of of the movie. That there's so many so many movies with the kind of the family theme, I think creates family drama that, that almost, that is too cliche or almost ruins it almost like on a CW level. Like it gets lost in like the, how could you betray me like this or whatever kind of, kind of plot that we've seen a million times. But in this, it's very like, they're so ready to forgive speed. Um, and, um, and get behind him and, and say, okay, well, I, I see now where I was like wrong with that. And it's, it's very, very heartwarming and ironically, like almost nails that family aspect better than like, um, the other racing movies about, uh, <laughs> about family with like the fast and the furious movies, um, where it's just like, you really do feel, and especially with like Trixie as the, as like the girlfriend who's like a part of the family. And then, um, uh, what's his name? The mechanic is also Sparky, like kind yeah. of around. Yeah. Sparky. It's, it's all, um, yeah, I don't know. You really, you really feel like they're kind of unconditional, like love and acceptance for each other and not in like a, a cartoony way where it's like, Oh, it's just that way because it is, but, um, but in a way that feels real. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy that, that this movie is able to hit those emotional beats, as I was saying, and, you know, as you were saying as well, that, where you, at one moment speed is driving up a cliff face and you're like, Oh my God, this looks so cool. This is awesome. And like the martial yeah. arts thing where the Wachowskis kind of be like, Hey, remember we did the matrix. Here's a, here's a martial arts fight scene with ninjas and everything. Um, <laughs> yeah. but then two seconds later, you know, we're getting, uh, pops is uh, apologizing to speed and saying that, you know, he's proud of him. And then, and he's like that this door is always open, really building off of the first again, the first 20 minutes and how it lays out the entire yeah, exactly. story with Rex. Well, he says, I didn't I didn't lose Rex in that cave. Yes. I lost him right here. Like, I think that's one of the like the, the linchpin of like the whole movie almost is that scene. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not ashamed to to admit that I've got I got a couple emotional a couple of times watching this with, with especially with Pops and Speed and that. Uh, that relationship, especially now being a father, too. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Well, and it, like I said, Ahead, um, in the beginning, it's r- really kind of fascinating. To, like, and not not to say that it's 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 cheap or or underbaked because that's not not the point. But they're they kept it so simple and like so pure that um, that the like the emotional or like the family drama is like really really identifiable. Instead of of like I said, I feel like another other writers or directors might have felt the temptation to try to find something more real um than like racing for them to come together around Mm -hmm. but instead they just kind of embrace this no racing is important to them um you know and um and so therefore they unite around the spirit of racing and and it seems absurd but it, it it totally works and like seeing them um um like young speed and um and pops like jumping on the couch and you really really feel that, especially when they bring that all back in that kind of rousing closing montage. Oh, we'll, we'll get there in a second. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and you know, the, the parallels with Spritel and young speed where he's like, you know, where he speeds, remember it speeds ready, getting ready to take off. And he's remembering when he was little and seeing Rex getting ready to leave. And he actually tell he's, he wants to yeah. go, can we go with, can we go with you? And he's like, no, he's like, 
He's like, why? And he says, you'll understand when it's your turn. I was like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 kind of, yeah, this movie's kind of very, it's got so much heart. And um, yeah, I think that's what elevates it from just being like a mindless spectacle is that it, it the family stuff is feels earned when those when those moments happen. And I, yeah, I think that's that's a big part of why it works for me. Uh, so, mm-hmm. of, of course, he ends up at the Grand Prix, naturally. <laughs> with the the Mach Six, we get that whole montage, and I I really love the fact that we do get a you know Sparky's kind of there in the background for most of the film, but we do get that moment with him and Speed right before the race starts. Uh, that I guess pays off when he lets him have the the cold fresh <laughs> milk uh, yeah. at the end because you know people like uh, Trixie like Sparky they're not technically part of the racer family, but they are. And so he's like basically the, I guess the Alice of this group, uh, for, yeah. um, as far as the Brady bench bunch is concerned. But, uh, I really, I like that it takes those, those moments, those character beats to recognize that, Hey, you know, we're a family. You're not, you don't really need to be here, but you, you're invested in this family just as much as, as the rest of us. And you know, that I, I like that it, it takes that, that moment to do that. It's supposed to just like up oh, straight into the, into the action sequence. Going into the um, the final race, also the thing that uh, I just think is so so crazy about that is we've been talking uh, quite a bit about kind of what they do with the the blue screen or the the green screen or whatever they used, and the and the intercutting and like the floating heads, and it's almost comical just how insane that gets in the introduction to the like I think at one point there's like five heads crisscrossing on the screen saying different different things and then. And then like oh, speeds, yeah, yeah, I yeah. think, comes up from the center and it's like um, it's all all over the place. But, you know, once again, I think they they do it in a way that that um, that works. And it's it's um, um, it it's like delivering, you know, they've got all the announcers um, delivering there. It's like the um, equivalent of like a like a montage where the where you're getting the headlines or the or the news reports or whatever from something else. But instead of like cutting between different different newscasters it's just all at once all at the same time like all over the screen yeah the the commentators and like the comedy with especially the the um the the comedy on the racetracks with like uh, was a snake oiler and his like snakeskin suit and like everything is like yeah. he's like i'm into snakes guys you getting this um, exactly I, or that was the, the thing I, I i forgot to to go into a little bit more in the the last race is when they're talking about hiring all the all the headhunters to take yes, them down yeah and like they they like they deliver the box of like the chest of furs to that to the one like the Viking group or whatever they were and they're all like <laughs> eating meat off the bone and like growling at each other and then they're like it's so like what is this universe that like where like all these people exist like where the, that there's there's people that have like high tech race cars who are more interested in furs like that's like, what they're bought off with it's it's just amazing. Yeah, I I loved all that stuff. It's so great, uh, and of course the, the you know getting into the uh, the finale, that big moment where um, well he gets the spear hook. He gets spear hooked basically, and does that that smart move to turn it towards the camera. We also get that that uh, get that weak shit off my track, which is a great line, and I think yeah. the, really the only bit of profanity in the whole movie actually. Yeah, I I, I had to rewind and double check to make sure he he cussed because I was like, wait, is that. Did he say that? And it's funny because every time I – or when I was doing that, I feel like I've done that like five other times. I'm like, wait, did he just say shit? <laughs> um, and um, – but it, it's it's delivered. It's like the um, the, what, the PG version of that like every PG-13 movie gets an F-bomb. Where do you put it? Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's the 
it's the S bomb and they, and they placed it perfectly. Yeah. Speed becomes a man. So he can use that kind of language now, I guess. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, it's, I think as far as like comebacks, it, it's, um, it's right up there. I think it's snake oiler that says, let's pinch these turds off <laughs> when in, in the other race, like as he upshifts, like it's, uh, yeah. So, I mean, we mentioned the, the, the milk afterwards and how that that's, you know, that encapsulates the, the sort of, uh, innocence of creation and, and art and race and racing and all that stuff. And, and of course speed, uh, wins the race and, and proves that will is greater than money and changed racing forever question mark. But the big yeah. thing for me is always been the way that, that I don't know if it's the music or the way that we, we get all those, I guess, flashbacks of audio from earlier in the movie, but that final lap with him is just to me so transcendent. I don't know what it, it's just like, it's, the, it's, it's the I think everything climax. is firing on all cylinders. It's, it's the music, it's the, it's the, the flashbacks. Um, even like the, the, the commentators, um, that are, that are bleeding into it at that moment of he's shattering the, the lap record and, and he's, and it's all as he's passing people, he's also overcoming these things in his, in his life. So it's like, it's all thematically building together as the score is like rising it, like down to the point where like as he goes through the explosion there's just a, the like pinpoint of light that stretches into like a hyperspace tunnel yeah, yeah. that's like a checkered spinning tube <laughs> like whatever he's it's just i don't know there's something it, it just it crescendos the entire movie and, and like i said i i feel like speed and pops jumping on the couch when I watch that moment every time. Yeah. It's, it's um, and there, and like, there's a lump in my throat too. I'm like, why am I feeling this way about this, this ridiculous movie? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like this movie is completely insane. Uh, and, and yet that moment you're so in it, you're so invested in, in the race. You're it's, it, it's just, it's just, it's a magical cinematic moment. I, I mean, I will, I'll go on record on, as on saying that, yeah. that it's that moment where he wins the race and where everything is, you know, uh, racer X saying, Oh, you know, you're going to do something amazing. I just hope I'm there to see it. And, and the thing with his mom and every it's, Oh God. So great. Well, it's one of those movies where it's like, what, when you say like, what is it? Why do you like movies? Or like, what do you watch movies for? It's like that, that moment yep. Yep. where it's the culmination of all this stuff. And like when it comes to the art, they put all this, there's Spritel, there's Racer X, there's these ridiculously costumed flavored villains and the over the top villain Royalton. And, and they bring every single one of those absurd, tonally dissonant elements into this montage that like shouldn't work. And it does. And as, and the hero is winning as the movie comes together and like everything, um, um, yeah, everything just, yeah, comes to this climax, not only like thematically, but like the actual, the actual plot comes to a close and the, the volume is rising. And I don't know, I don't know if there's any more ways to align every thread of the movie into one cohesive moment. But the, yeah, the second that he like bursts through those cars is it's like, um, in return of the Jedi, when they burst out of the death star, um, at the, at the end and like there's the fire around them and they, and they get out and Lando like, whoops, it's a very similar kind yeah. of like, like everything just like you have to stand up and cheer. Right. Or, or, or in, you know, um, in a new hope when he's trying to, to make that final shot in the death star, another star Wars, we were talking about star Wars, yeah. a lot, but I mean, it's George Lucas visionary. Well, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. 
and and uh, at the last second, Han Solo comes in with the "Let's blow this thing and go home." It's like that kind of yeah. high uh, f- yeah. for the climax of this movie. And not to say that Speed Racer as is on the same level of Star Wars or anything like that, but that moment it, it attains that. No, same. but like as a like, I've never. I'm not. A, I'm not a filmmaker. But if I was like that, my life goal would be to create a single moment yes. in a movie that is that that is that that would be what I would I would strive to achieve. And then once I achieved it. I would drive myself insane trying to taste it again. <laughs> um, and, um, and so it's, it's, you know, the fact that the Wachowskis can do that in the matrix. And then like, you know, again, with, with this, such a totally different movie from that. Um, you know, you, you, like I said, that's why Warner brothers keeps on coming back is like, give us, you know, you, you all got any more of them moments. <laughs> like, it's like the Dave Chappelle thing. Got any more of those? Yeah. Those speed race. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think we, I, I had a lot of notes for this movie and I feel like we covered pretty much all of them. Is there anything about Speed Racer that we haven't talked about that you wanted to uh, uh, make sure we mention? I don't know if there's anything, anything really specific. I mean, the, I, I, well, I found that a lot of what I wrote down was some of the, the ridiculous dialogue that they kind of embrace, like to make yeah. it work. Like, um, like Racer X telling him, you don't climb into a T-180 to be a driver. You do it because you're driven. Um, like what does that what does that mean? Like what, <laughs> like, what it like, but it, it but it works because the the delivery is so earnest and in this universe there is some sort of inherent value placed on place on on driving, or um, actually they, they, there's a line in this that I think is the basically the same line as in a number of movies. Most specifically that I remember is Star Trek um, Into Darkness, which I also like, but I'm not. That's a, another controversial one I know, but I don't really have any. I'm not very precious about. Um, any of the other Star Trek movies. So I'm not really offended by what they did with Khan or anything. Right. But, um, but the, anyway, the line is, um, uh, I think pop says you can't drive a car and change the world. Yeah. And yeah. speed's response is, is maybe not, but it's the only thing I know how to do and I've got to do something, uh, which I think Chris Pine said the exact same thing in, um, or almost the exact same thing in, in, in into darkness. And I remember when I saw it, like in a trailer for into darkness, I had this reaction where I was like, that's absurd. Like that's the most ridiculous movie line possible. Cause that means literally nothing. All you're doing is giving your, your protagonist an excuse to do the thing that he does in the script yet making it matter somehow. Mm-hmm. But like the more that I've seen it in other movies, the more I kind of love it because as we're talking about this movie, just embracing what it, what it is, that's the line that gives it permission to be that um, where, you know, why does racing matter? Well, it, because we say it does like, it's the only thing he knows how to do and he's got to do something. Okay, cool. So, so that he says that line and therefore we're going to watch a movie about him driving a car to save the world. We're done. Like, well, let's not think about it anymore beyond yeah. that. Yeah. The, the family um, is racing. I mean, their name is literally, literally racer. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. That's the other thing I had to, I was taught to tell my wife early on. I'm like, first of all, you're gonna have to just buy into this because this is <laughs> yeah. the way this is. His first name is Speed. His last name is Racer. <laughs> That's the deal. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's um, there's a, there's a great, and I'm not even really into racing at all or, or you know that's not even like no same that, so it, you know it, it's it uses racing in the same way that the uh, like the six million Rocky movies use boxing. It's like, this yeah. is our life. You got to get back on, get back in the driver's It doesn't matter scene. how many yeah. times you get hit. What matters is how many times you yeah. get back up. Or, and it works or in all those Rocky movies too. So Yeah. Um, or um, let's see, what was one of the other lines I had? Oh, the like the you were saying like the racing terminology. I love the part where um, 
where, well, first of all, they established that it takes them like several weeks to build a car, whereas it takes Royalton to do it in, in like 36 hours or whatever. And then at the end, Pops is like, how long did he say his fancy machine can make it? And he's like, 36 hours. He's like, well, we'll do it in 32. It's like, how? (laughs) (laughs) You're like five Because you said so? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But, you know, know, but but you buy it because it works. And then he says... um, what do you say? He says, transponder, schmonder, you want the real, you want the real thing? You go Bernoulli. Like what? <laughs> that's a bunch of, that's a bunch of nothing, but it, but it, it, like it, it embraces it so well. Or the other one that I liked was, it's not actually spoken, but it's, um, the, um, the very closing of the movie. Um, obviously there's the, there's the, the cootie warning, which I, which I like, but, um, as it closes out, it gives like the quick headlines of the, of the newspapers to kind of be like, Oh yeah, here's how these other plot points wrap up. And the best is like judge sentence or, um, a Royalton sentenced to, to prison or whatever. Um, as judge declares cheaters never prosper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, it just, it felt like, I don't know. I don't even know if the, if like the, the animated that, but it felt very much like a PSA at the end of like, like a GI Joe PSA. It was like, remember kids, cheaters never prosper. <laughs> Knowing is half the battle. You yeah, know, you, exactly. You drive because you're driven. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. It, but it, it totally, yeah. It, you get the act, these actors to say it with enough conviction. You get people like John Goodman to say things like that. And I will completely buy into it. Uh, and that's, that's so much of the balancing act as we've talked about that, that this film pulls off the, the cartoonish humor, the, the like emotion, like the, it's, I don't, I don't even, I still, I still don't really know exactly how it works. We've been talking about it for over an hour and I, I'm still like, how does that, how did they pull that off? And that's, that's the magic of, of the Wachowski movies. Like, except, I mean, I actually really like cloud Atlas. I have mixed feelings about, uh, the matrix sequels. I think there's elements of them that work. That would be, and actually, that would be a good um, podcast to go through the Matrix sequels minute by minute. Uh, oh, yeah. In the way that you're doing BVS, because there is a lot to cover uh, there. And again, it's kind of either, a lot of times just gets dismissed out uh, offhand. Um, but well, I feel we, like that's the, that'd be the best way to cover it, too, because yeah. there's so much in there that's like worth talking about where people don't because it's, oh, yeah, that dumb one where they just shoot the, the machine guns at the Sentinels for, for 30 minutes. And it's right. like, well, sure, you can dismiss the movie or you can like take this really cool minute of it and like actually talk about something interesting. And so much film discussion kind of gets lost in that, like, is it good or bad discussion? Where it's like, forget, is it good or bad? Like every movie like has some creative input and. How how much of a disservice is it to those artists to um, like they work so hard on this for for years of their life and then it comes out and everyone's only cares about is it good or bad and not um, and not like looking for the the gold nuggets of all the effort from, you know, every single person that worked on it. Right. And that's part of why I like doing the show and having people come on and pick a movie that they really like because then we're, we're already kind of focusing on the more positive side of things and we're able to talk about films from all different eras not necessarily like oh the new release that we just saw what's our first impression oh the same as everyone else probably yeah <laughs> you know we have this movie is 11 years old so we've had 11 years to think about it to rewatch it to consider elements of it and be like well why do why do we keep going back to watch Speed Racer or The Matrix or Batman v Superman and things like that like what is it about those movies that even if they're like not are necessarily our favorite movies or they're not necessarily the quote best movies like there is something in there that keeps drawing us back that we keep wanting to relive or re-experience or re just reconsider and think about and I think Speed Racer is a great example of that yeah yeah very much so cool so uh Stephen Colbert can you tell people where they can find you on social media 
Uh, yeah, I am on uh, Twitter at SM uh, Colbert, uh, C-O-L-B-E-R-T, just like just like Colbert. Um, and uh, and then I'm on on Screen Rant um, when I have a chance to write. I'm I'm on there with uh, with kids and other stuff. I, I write a lot less than I than I probably should, but uh, um, chances are, if you read a feature over there, I might have edited it though. Excellent. Great. Well, this was this was awesome. I'm glad we got a chance to talk about Speed Racer, and it's really making me itch to talk about more Wachowski stuff uh, in the future oh, yeah. on this podcast. So, um, you know. oh, um, I was going to say. Also, I missed. Sorry, yeah, an yeah, additional plug. We talked about that at the beginning, but obviously, BVS by the minute. Also, um, we're on like you know any any podcast app or whatever, and then on Twitter, it's at BVS by the minute. Um, so um, that's that's the other place you can find me. Absolutely awesome. Perfect. Well, I, I would love to have you back another time, whether we talk about a Wachowski movie or, or something else. Uh, I promise I won't make you come back on to talk about BVS, since I'm sure you've had quite <laughs> enough of that, uh, doing your own show about it. Uh, what, how far are you in the, in the movie, actually? I'm just kind of curious at this point. We just hit minute 35. Okay. Um, so I think actually, actually after in, a, in an hour or two, I'm going to re- probably record. Um, we'd, we like to record it in chunks, so probably going to record another two three episodes something like that nice so um, around so. what scene are you in now just out of curiosity um so we just got um lex just kind of fully introduced i think he just got zod's body from oh, okay. uh um from the government he pushed so, the jolly rancher in the guy's mouth basically yes there. actually yeah we just yeah. we just did that one i think it was with that one and then the and the, the minute after that is the one that that just came out um where uh, we talked for like 20 minutes about henry cavill's physique um, so yeah. that's another one where Only 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. We, um, I think that's, uh, we sort of had that same discussion with the beginning of this movie, how it's like this almost info dump. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, obviously you go listen to the podcast. I don't, I don't need to put it all here, but, um, mm-hmm. was fascinating about BVS is the first 20 minutes is basically, it feels like it's broken up into one minute chunks where like almost every minute is, um, transitioned by like a gunshot or an explosion or like it feels like it was wrong like it was plotted out one minute at a time which was fascinating to discover as we were as we covered it one minute at a time and kind of at the end of that 20 minutes is like a prologue and then it's like now that you know all that stuff here's the movie and um and and that was kind of really fascinating to discover but anyway yeah, Snyder's a much more meticulous (laughs) yeah Snyder's a much more meticulous filmmaker I think than people give him credit for Oh yeah, well he storyboards every single. You know, he doesn't use a script; he uses storyboards with dialogue written, and he basically makes a comic book before he shoots it. Yeah, yeah, excellent, awesome. Well, thank you so much again for for coming on the show, yeah. and uh, definitely people who are interested in the Wachowski Speed Racer and movies that really, really swing for the fences uh, from a visionary perspective, definitely check out BVS by the Minute. So, thanks so much, yeah, Stephen. I appreciate having you. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of a little KED. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.